the Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Tessa Lena. I discovered her work in the age of COVID-1984. Tessa is a strongly opinionated musician living in New York, a classically trained pianist and singer born and raised in Moscow. Her websites are Tessa Fights Robots and Tessa Makes Love. Her substack is amazing. Her commentary on COVID-1984, very insightful. She often gets featured on Dr. Mercola's website and she has a great YouTube channel where she interviews interesting people. Thank you for joining me today, Tessa. How is the Great Reset New York edition? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much for having me as a guest. That, that's an honor and a pleasure. And I've been following your work and it's wonderful. And as they say, we're in this together. <laughs> In, 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 indeed, it depends, you know, who, who is they, right? <laughs> and how are we in this together? So yeah, who yeah, are they, and what is this, and what the word together really means? <laughs> we, we need to break that uh, down. Um, I one of my first questions is, you know, the the last musician that I interviewed was Brad Skistimas of Five Times August, who is fantastic. I'm sure you've heard some of his songs uh, protesting COVID 1984. Um, maybe because you're kind of an eclectic guest, which I mean as a compliment, and uh, your background is not easy to quickly understand, like when I go to your various websites, trying to figure out who you are exactly. But maybe if you could just give us a brief introduction of uh, for the audience, you know, who Tessalena is, where you come from, and, and what, what you do, kind of like your background. Of course. Well, first of all, I'm still trying to figure out who I am. So <laughs> that's not an easy question. But on the formal side of it, well, I'm a musician, primarily, and originally, I've been doing uh, classical music as a kid, and then I decided to abandon that and switch to bands and in a rock and roll, and then I did Tibetan studies. I went to Tibet and I was working on my thesis that I never ended because I was attacked by a sex trafficker, which is, you know, like my life is a little weird like that. So then I came to the States and I did many things, uh, and then in the past two years, doing music has become a little bit difficult because of venues and dates and all that. So I've mostly switched to writing and recording things at home when I can. But I've been compelled to write about this COVID thing because as a musician, I was involved in anti-big tech activism for some years prior to COVID because some, somehow the music industry has been eaten by big tech guys prior to everybody else. And I remember back then, a few years ago, musicians were like, oh, we can't eat, poor us. And everybody would go, get a job, stop whining. <laughs> and then we were joking, you know, if, if, if they try to do to farming what they're doing to musicians, everybody will starve. Well, it's not funny in 2022 anymore. So anyway, uh, so when this whole thing started, I could not believe it was happening because every single step of the way of what was presented to us as health, health measures was one of those things I was writing about, as in one day this horrible thing may happen and this dystopian future, surely one day after my lifetime, but we, sh we, sh we should still ponder, we should, like there's still danger some, some time in the faraway future. And all of a sudden they were doing that, all those things that... Google wanted to do, taking education online, taking everything online, monitoring, surveillance. They got away with the things that I thought would happen 50 years from now or something like that. So I could not believe that it was a reaction. 
and that compelled me to become outspoken fairly early on like well like many of us where it felt a little bit scary because all of my friends all of a sudden were on a different side of those things and i like them and i mean like i still like many of them but they were like full covid like covid central right away and i was like something is not right something is fishy and i made that decision in april to open my mouth like full 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 width like just like open it and talk about it and life has been actually interesting and in many ways very very good since because once you start really speaking your truth on something that matters all of a sudden people show up like new friendships show up that you would never even think of so in that sense it's been amazing and real and of course there's this whole other reality with mandates and the big the great reset and all those things but the community has been amazing a message from our sponsors the nomos app will help you survive covid 1984 and the great reset Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's borderless health insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, and a monthly members group call, all of which will also be available in Espanol. Yeah, I would agree. The same has happened to me. Like, I, I never write anyone off for their views, but there's people all of a sudden writing us off because we're not on board with the whole, uh, what do people call it, co-, co um the COVID culture or whatever. And like I said, I just started the membership for my website. I'm getting people uh, joining. And so, yeah, people are responsive. Like, and I, they, they, they paint it as we're like a minority where when I think actually we're, we are actually a, a majority of people kind of, we're not alone as you write in, in some of your uh, pieces and as well, just on the music industry, I've noticed that the music industry has kind of been dead back in the nineties and two thousands. I've been, a, I was a music freak. I listened to so much music, all kinds of music. I've been to so many concerts and lately it just seems the artists they're not putting out new music and obviously the the venues being shut down is a problem but it's just like something is happening and i had a question about that later your your thoughts on the, the music industry today but let's kind of start with the 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 big enchilada as we say um i was recently reading your soviet man piece and some things really started to click for me uh really come together since 2020 uh, i have been saying that we are witness what we are witnessing what we are being subjected to is really truly no exaggeration the the, be, the beginning birth pangs of the same sort of totalitarianism totalitarianisms we saw in the 1930s nazism fascism communism technocracy eugenics and I, I'm not kidding, you know, my, my Croatian history is steeped in this. My grandfather was a prisoner, I believe, under the Croatian Nazi regime in the 40s. And, you know, then I recently read Naomi Wolf's Substack, who's saying the same thing. Uh, she says there's a clear parallel between the early 1930s 
uh, Germany and the 2020s today, globally, and that we could end up with the very same level of, of evil. And then you write in Soviet Man that, quote, it's like watching the very beginning of the movie whose ending I saw as a kid in the collapsing USSR, that you reread a few works by Lenin and your jaw dropped at how easily his cold-blooded strategy from 1918 yields itself to today's reforms, that you were surprised to learn that he was quite a fan of Frederick Taylor and scientific management, just like our friends at the World Economic Forum. Then you wonder if we are living through a resurrection of the Soviet man in the West. This domination-driven psychological trajectory has happened so many times in history and so many cultures, including your own. Uh, and so I think you're really nailing it on the head. So maybe it'd be great for you if you could give us your kind of insight uh, explanation of, you know, COVID-1994, the Great Reset, uh, what's going on you know, for, from your viewpoint, which I think is also additionally valuable being someone from the Soviet Union. Well, there's so much to say. So let me start from the child's mind and the psychology, not in a fancy way, but in a, in a media direct way. So what I remember as a kid, for example, and as a kid, uh, like I, I caught the very tail end of the Soviet Union. And as a kid, everything is great always. It's like, you, you know, it's like as long as, as long as you can play and like, it's good. But what I remember is the misery and the unhappiness. And ultimately, this is what I ran away from when I ended up being uh, ended up going to America. It was not anything political at all. And by the time I came here, it was like freedom, uh, like amazing freedom and all that. But I remember that misery of adults, they were just not happy. They just really did not like joy. And on some level, and it wasn't an intellectual choice. It wasn't like they intellectually believed the choice horrible. But everything was just so miserable. And there was this cult of suffering. And by cult, I mean the lives of the adults of the generations prior to mine, they were hard. Like my life as a kid was significantly easy because by that time, Soviet Union was really falling apart. Nobody cared. And uh, because my parents experienced great poverty in their own childhood, they made sure that they like hustle and do whatever they can to make sure that my childhood was not spent in such poverty. Maybe it was poverty compared to America, but really, I don't remember it as such. Like I had stuff and food and clothing and all those things, unlike my parents who were struggling. So, but they were so hung up on that survival and the cult of suffering. And one of the things that strangely came back to us in 2020 is that uh, like disease blackmail. I remember that and I've been thinking about it for years in a completely different context, but where it's like, if you have that party as a teenager, or if you listen to this music, then look at my health. My health is going to suffer because you're just causing me problems. And that kind of psychology, I mean, it was sincere, but I remember not knowing what to do with it as a teenager because this is a horrible choice on the one thing you have this thing that you feel that is you that is that your soul wants on the other hand it's people who you love who you absolutely you like you you mean you love them from the heart you want to please them you want them to be happy and they're telling you that if you go with your soul that you're causing them suffering i mean that's an impossible choice and I remember really like not knowing what to do with it. I ended up just like leaving 
the country because, and I didn't think it through in those words back then because back then it was just like emotion, just going with the flow. But then as I was thinking about it years later, that's what I ran away from. I ran away from that misery. And it was, and then as I started all of a sudden, as I was growing up, I started discovering the same patterns in myself in some way without consciously desiring them. I was like, wait a second, what's going on? Like, like I started to unwrap the generational cabbage, just trying to understand what led to what, why I feel what I feel. And I started watching a lot of movies from like the 50s and early, just trying to understand the generations prior in the Soviet Union, how they came to be what they were and what led to that and history. And I realized how tragically they were fucked, essentially. And many of them never got an opportunity to even like think it through because, for example, and let's not forget, like, First, it was centuries of bad rulers who didn't care and who were abusive before any communism, before anything. So there was this forced conversion to Christianity from paganism, which was many centuries ago, many, many centuries ago. But it was as violent as any of those conversions. Like people didn't want it. And then the leaders thought it through in their head. Uh, and in, in the case of like my own homeland, they were choosing between when they decided they wanted to convert their people to civilized religion. They were choosing between two types of Christianity, uh, Islam and Judaism. And based on various political uh, considerations and aesthetic considerations, they decided to run with Eastern Christianity. So, and that, that became the truth. And then there was bloodshed and it was essentially eradicated. And for example, now as I am uh, learning about various indigenous cultures, I recognize the traces of that in children's folk tales, like Russian folk tales. And to me, it is like remembering my own past, going back, 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 back centuries. And there is this melancholy that is lingering in the culture from centuries before, even before any communism. Right? Like, for example, I was. Uh, as a teenager, I was hiking and I am very much like I grew up as a, very much a city person, like, you know, with all the arrogance of a city person and all the habits of a city person. But anyway, I went hiking to a like remote village somewhere, like tiny village. And I went with a bunch of my friends who are mostly male because like hiking. So and then uh, as we were doing our thing, walking around in that like remote area, some of the local drunks in the village literally offered to buy me from my male friends for a bottle of vodka. And it wasn't any, I mean, I laugh about it. It wasn't, I was definitely not traumatized by that incident because like, it's funny, but just the culture, it's like people drinking their lives away in those small places because there's like, there's no future, like this complete tragic feeling of life. And that's real. I mean, like, that's not, it is a stereotype, but it's also real, right? So, and that can probably be rooted to centuries before when something was stolen from people, something meaningful, and then they were told to live by the book. And living by the book is never like it really makes sense. So, from that, then serve them, then all those things. Then I think that from what I hear, after the serfdom was abolished, which was abolished in 1861 in, in Russia. And from that point, 
the village actually developed. And by the time the Bolshevik revolution happened, actually the peasants were doing fine. Like, you know, it has been more than half a century from the abolition of serfdom. So people kind of spread their wings and started doing fine. And then, of course, the industrial revolution that was happening on the back, like especially in the West, but also started happening in Russia. So there's, there's this interest of building up cities. So people, peasants, children who went to the cities, they were not doing fine anywhere. In America, in Russia, in, in, in Europe, at that time, people in early 20th century factory workers were doing miserably, like horrible living conditions, totally abusive. So in that circumstance, Russia had, well, first one revolution, then another revolution, then Bolshevik revolution on the uh, toes, on the, on the toes of another revolution the same year. And what happened then was very strange because it was a coup by a small group of terrorists, essentially. And they were ambitious, but nobody really, I think that if you asked somebody on January 1, 1917, if that particular group of people could overturn this huge, massive land within a match of several years, I think they would be called a conspiracy theorist because it's pretty hard to imagine, right? And so miraculously, all of a sudden, in a matter of a few years, the entire geopolitical landscape is different, right? And then, and going back to my story about the psychology, and I'm sorry if I'm blabbering because I have so much to say about it. I'm like, I'm all over the place. But so the generation of my grandparents were the first generation who were born after the revolution, like within the several years after the revolution. So they had the most amount of propaganda because it was, you know, the great reset in a way. So they really put everything on this propaganda and making sure the children believe the teachers at school who are propagandists as opposed to their own parents or their grandparents. So they were subjected to massive, massive, massive propaganda. And they were really believers in this whole communism. And I want to emphasize that I'm skeptical about uh, putting too much weight on isms because most of them have been used for for some kind of crap. In this case, the ideology of the day was communism. That's what the Bolsheviks were using. And they propagandized the generation of my grandparents like, ridiculously. And I, I, I would just add, I had the same comment I with my last interview with James Corbett, and I was uh, asking him this question. And I also agree for me, it's just basically about money and power. And the elites really don't care uh, about the ideology for me is just like they want total control and they will use communism they will use you know monopoly capitalism or whatever technocracy um you know biopolitics or whatever to to get total control so i i kind of kind of agree thank you no i mean i spent this is one of the things that i've been uh thinking about for years and years and years and years from different angles because i've lived under this ism and then i've lived under this ism and their differences, their advantages and disadvantages. But in the end, it's something, in my opinion, that is much deeper, that is the soul. And I want to get back to that later. But in this case, so the generation of my grandparents were really messed with. And I remember when they were, even when they were old and completely betrayed by the state, who 
put all those ideas into them. They defeated Hitler. They had a hard life. They had a very, very hard life. They had to struggle. They were harsh. And when they were old, everything changed. And they were told, oh, by the way, that was a lie. Goodbye. Nobody cares. Uh, you know, suckers. And I remember that experience and thinking about this betrayal. And I don't know, so that changed something in me because regardless of the ideas, obviously, like those ideas I thought were silly, like the communism, the whatever. When I was a teenager, everybody knew that, quote unquote, that that was silly. That, like, you know, everybody became smart and like, oh, the Soviet Union was horrible. The propaganda was horrible. Communism was horrible. Now we're smart. And I had I, I the same thing for me because uh, I... Uh, in the early 80s, when I was a kid, every year I went to, at the time it was Yugoslavia. We went, because we, we went to Croatia, it's where my parents were born, Croatia, Yugoslavia. And it's the same thing after the war in 1990, um, you know, Croatia became an independent republic. And it's the same thing, like your experience, you know, oh, you know, Yugoslav communism was stupid. And now we have our democratic Croatian republic. Yay, right? Like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, I remember specifically that by the Soviet standards, Yugoslavian communism was not good communism it was like defective communism it was not real communism so <laughs> it was so li that. light yeah very light <laughs> but, so thinking about the tragedy of people who like regardless the ideology might, might might have been stupid but they put soul into that and they they suffered for that and seeing how they were essentially betrayed by the machine especially Given the irony, there was the children of communist leaders who became the oligarchs to a large degree. I mean, there, there were some exceptions, but it was essentially the the dynasty carried on just under a different under a different ism. So that impacted me, and that is one of the reasons why today, as annoyed as I get by the you know COVID central people. As, as frustrating as it is, which it is without a doubt, I kind of see in them that generation who were stressed out, propagandized, and and my my grandparents as a as a generation of people, they were really harsh because I remember how it was conventional for that generation to talk. Oh, we should just shoot him. Oh, we should like you know he's a criminal. Just shoot him. I mean, applied to today's and anti vaxxers like that's bad talk, that's not kind, but that's how they were trained to. And at the same time, they were amazing human beings. They would, if you were on their side, which at the time, everybody was on the same side. So really nobody had that problem in, among the common people. Like the, the all people who had the problem were in the gulag probably. Right. So. <laughs> Which, uh, they're, they're, tr they're trying to put us now in the digital gulag, the algorithm uh, ghetto. And so w would you then say the, the picture that you painted, like, would you say now 2020 is like 1917 or this? The, and it's if you study history, they've been trying to do this. It's like a cycle. They try this every century, you know, to put us into this totalitarian system. And uh, would you say that now we're like at the beginning of the creation of a new Soviet Union or or in the middle or it's, or it's going to collapse? Like, where do you see us at with this great reset? I think they're trying something similar. And going back to your question and that article that I wrote. I I was working on something and one th thing led to another. I started rereading Lenin and uh, I had to study Lenin at school and then I happily forgot 
because at the time it was like nonsense. We just have to study it, pass the test and forget. So that's what I did. And then I started reading him now. And I was like, oh, my God, he was laying out this cold minded strategy, completely, frankly, just maniac and like psychotic where it's let, let's exterminate all property owners and it's righteous. Let's just kill them all. Let's have no mercy. Let's exterminate them and exterminate them again and then come back and exterminate them again. I mean, like it's really like bloodthirsty. And but there's this strategy that he is laying out for complete restructuring and uh, well, especially that work that I was reading from 1917. That was a famous speech about you know what the Soviet government should do, and it was a plan for restructuring. And he was also laying out a clever strategy, saying like for now, because there are more specialists and experts among the bad people, among the, the, those like bourgeois and horrible people who we want to exterminate. And then again, and then again, nonetheless, right now, they can offer the expertise that we need solely because we tried without them and it kind of sucks because like all people are not trained enough. So for now, let's work with them, wink, wink, for now, and let's learn what they can and then exterminate, exterminate, exterminate. So it's like, and it's cold and granted it was printed in Pravda, so it's not like he was hiding that strategy, but nonetheless. So, and now I'm thinking with the mandates kind of ending in some places, I am thinking, what are they doing? Are they temporarily giving us, which is probably, you know, my honest theory right now that they're not really planning to give us freedom, quote unquote. It's just a temporary recess, most likely. But when viewed through that strategy by Lenin, it's really, it doesn't feel very good. And then his love of Frederick Taylor is stunning because, well, I'm sure all of your listeners know about Frederick Taylor and his scientific management, which became the foundation of this whole conveyor. And then he worked with Ford and they figure out a way how to squeeze profits uh, out of workers by making their work extremely efficient. And essentially, they stole creativity out of people. They stole the spark, the way a craftsman would take his time to make something beautiful so they, they split the process into tiny little bits and then workers were essential human robots. And so, but I mean, like that, that, that's another story. But so one would imagine that Lenin would despise it, such horrible capitalist practice. And he started with criticizing, in, uh, criticizing it in 1913. Then by 1914, he was already saying, well, it kind of, of it's, it's, it's awful when capitalists do it. But wait a second, we can use it for our system and then it's pretty damn cool. And then he actually put even more emphasis on that, saying we should really study Taylorism everywhere, every factory. This is how we're going to make ourselves efficient. And Taylorism, Taylorism is really like soul design, which I guess Bolsheviks were as well. So makes sense. But I was surprised that he was such an explicit big fan which, again, people at the World Economic Forum are tailorists at heart because that's what they want to do. They want to make everything efficient. They want even to make our bodies more efficient, wink, wink, by various nanotechnology and such, such things. So there are definite parallels. I think uh, it might be a disservice to frame it in terms of isms because if we think about it, I think communism as such 
is a myth. It's like this carrot attached to a horse that never gets the carrot. It's just not human nature does not really allow for that. That's, that's my same view. I've always viewed it that it's a theory that can never be put in practice. And again, that's influenced my, by my own view. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I, I believe in the idea of sin. And so you can never trust man with so much power. It just can't be put into practice. It's just a theory. It's like you say, it's a carrot in front of the, the, the donkey. Um, and you mentioned the craftsmanship and art. And I just kind of had a question on that, given that you're a musician, I'd like to get your thought on how, why so many musicians and rockers who were and are supposed to be anti-establishment have gone full corporate woke status quo, you know, uh, five times August and I talked about this, but we've seen everyone from Neil Young to Bruce Springsteen to Foo Fighters to you name it, toe the Pfizer line. Uh, and you wrote a piece about this. You pointed out how Neil Young sold half his catalog, I think, to some investment fund, which is chaired by a former Pfizer CEO. So, you know, what, what the heck or what the frijoles is, I like to say, you know, why are they all joining the matrix? What's going on? How, how do you explain this? <laughs> well, like, again, so many things to say. Well, Neyland's uh, th that fund, uh, there's a board member who is also on, on, on like Pfizer. So we never know uh, whether he's sincere and to which extent Neyland is sincere. Like only he knows uh, which part of it is money, which part of it is his sincere convictions. But in general, it's horrible. I feel like I've been living a lie all my life because as a kid in Moscow, the idea of those rockers from the West, they were gods. And they were, you know, it's like free freedom, America, this romantic idea of like democracy. And probably as, as a kid, you don't use those words. I mean, I wasn't thinking like democracy, but you know, there was something in it that was like good, like soul, freedom. And now I realized maybe that was a lie all along and they were never actually rebellious. And they were just doing that branded, co-branded corporate rebellion to begin with as spoiled kids. It's like the different kind of rebellion. It's rebellion against the parents or the rules or whatever. And, you know, there's there things to say about that. But I think, I don't know. It, it's so interesting because the music industry, it seems like most of my friends uh, who were involved in that same anti-big tech activism, as I, and I mean, I love them dearly to this day. I mean, I don't have to agree on everything with people in order to like them. But nonetheless, it seems like uh, they are on a very weird, they, they, like COVID central. They really, really embraced it and the masks and all this. So uh, what drives them? I think some of them, I know, I know they're sincere. They're, they, they are sincere and some of them, I know for sure are not cowards. They've been brave in the past on different issues. They were just really stressed out. What is happening? I think that the propagandists have put so much pressure on scaring people uh, with all, you know, a 24 seven, especially in New York where I am like death, 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 death. Like, you know, like people dying, people dying, people dying, people dying. And I think that perhaps people who were born here uh, they were always a little privileged. And I'm saying it with a grain of salt because obviously everybody's different. But they probably either never experienced like true oppression or true pressure 
So to them, that was the experience of like war. And because the people who designed the fear campaign, and that is regardless of, you know, like what COVID is, is or is not, like I personally think I have it, I had it uh, in 2020 and it was not pleasant at all. It was actually pretty intense. So, and I know people who have died most likely because they were medically mismanaged. So, but I mean, like that's another tragedy, but the way it was handled in the media is that we're at war with this invisible enemy with the virus and probably Americans don't have a habit of mistrusting their government to the same extent that people in the Eastern Bloc do. So it was unthinkable for them to assume that the entire government would just lie to them. Although it's funny because the vaccines in America were developed under Trump, which one would imagine a person on the left should not trust for that reason alone, and yet. So it's, it's, it's really fancy, but I, I thought about it a lot. I think really a spell was put on people and they stopped thinking. And I have many opposing feelings about that because on the one hand, like what the fuck and enough is enough. On the other hand, I've been in denial about things before in the past and I try to see, or I mean, like I actually not even try I me mean, like that. That's my inclination to see a, an existential learning experience from that, because as long as people are in, den in denial, then life is going to be tough probably for them. And then it will have to get very tough for them to snap out of it. And that would be the moment of individual awakening. And that's usually the human path. Because in my own case, then I was in an abusive marriage and I was in denial. And I was in denial because, I mean, years ago, it's long over. But at the time, it was so impossible for me to accept the fact that it could be happening to me. Like after going to top schools, like being the uppity, this and that and that and that. So I could not associate myself with this like this plot being in an abusive marriage. And because of that, my brain found all sorts of explanations and I was afraid to talk to people about it. And I almost like denied what was happening. I mean, not almost, I was actually denying it. And then the, the reason why I had to snap out of it because there was just no way. I mean, either that or die. So I learned a very hard way. And from that point on, it's very hard for me to just believe in the goodness of the machine. But I had to go through that experience. And also, I'm from Eastern Europe. So I'm thinking people who are from here, I mean, they're obviously as human as anybody else. And if faced with the machine directly, they will probably snap out of it. It's it's I, I've talked about this before on this podcast, you know, it's uh, some of what you talk about is like Stockholm syndrome. And as mm -hmm. well, it's like I, I'm here in Mexico and people in the Americas in generally like United States, Mexico, they haven't for a long time faced this beast of, of evil like we Europeans have. Right. Russians and, and, and Croatians and, and Germans and, and others. And we know like I interviewed that uh, Polish, the Canadian Polish pastor, Arthur Polowski, and he's been shouting for 15 years, you know, saying, 
he lived under his grandparents lived under the Nazi regime. He lived under the communist regime. And he's saying for 15 years, he's been saying that's coming to Canada and everyone just like, ah, whatever. And now, now it's here. And what are you going to do? And as you say, it's like a mechanism, coping mechanism where people don't want to recognize the reality and they'd rather be like, la la, everything's fine. Um, and exactly. I, and I had, I had, um, I guess another, and you, you mentioned the, the invisible virus, like over there for the New Yorkers, COVID central, I call it like, well, it's like invisible terror, terrorism, like the, you know, global war on terror. I call it the Corona Bin Laden, right? Like this. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Ev evasive. Like you'll never, it's just going to go on forever. The, the, the war um, regarding the, this biosecurity state. I mean, you mentioned the great reset and how they took a pause right now. They're, moving things a step back but they're not removing the covid digital passports and like you said for me it's like the calm before the, the next storm and they're just gonna the, the for me the the biggest thing are these di crazy digital passports for me like that's one of the keys in all of this uh, of the this control system you know you've got masks and other things but they're really pushing with these digital passports which will be total control of our lives like for me that's the number one i can't think of anything else like and um but what about for you you know what aspects of this biosecurity state digital dictatorship whatever you want to call it uh do you worry about the most and how bad do you think things can get from here on out oh well that's a good question i think uh from the standpoint of what they're trying to do uh if their dreams come true and that they are probably it's you know the the, the same suspects like the, the top 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 wealthy people the central bankers the investors into blackrock and vanguard and all those people so and i'm sure they're a disparate group with some common interests so the world is always complex but with that disclaimer if they get what they want which i don't think they will because it's just too crazy but they will definitely try and they are trying. Then it is that digital slavery system that is quite gloomy where, well, the idea is, as I'm sure your audience is aware, is to put a sensor in every man, woman and child. And of course, it's for our health. They're just going in to monitor sugar in our blood and our heart rate and report to the mothership like when we need some help. And, you know, and by the way, I think in an ideal world, for some people with rare diseases, it would be great. If it were in a place that is benevolent and nobody's trying to, like, do bad things with it. Like, technology always has good use when it's in balance and with wisdom and, like, without evil intentions. But we don't live in an ideal world. And what they're trying to do is this digital slavery system which, well, I mean, there are many brilliant thinkers and writers who talk about it and like the financial side of it, where it's all titled digital wallet. And then uh, based on what we say on social media, they can turn it off or they can tell us your purchase. You, you cannot buy this food because then you're out of carbon credits. And of course, as we know, for example, MasterCard, is doing the projects right now where they're experimenting with a card with a carbon limit, where if you hit your carbon limit that you can't use the card anymore. And they're not advertising. And by the way, that like one of their projects, Dichotomy, which I'm sure you know, right? That, that is one of those projects about uh, limiting spending. Uh, 
if you look for that word, and I was writing something, so I, I went through it a couple of days ago. If you Google dichotomy on, on Google, it does not come up. You go to DuckDuckGo, it's number one because it's a brand name. It's the actual word. So it means that they don't really want the public to be aware of it just yet. Just like my website, I, I typed in ge uh, geopolitics and empire uh, last week and it doesn't appear on Google search, but on DuckDuckGo, oh. it's number one. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so many like they're doing all that. And by the way, you know, I've been, I've, I've been having a cold, so I've been ordering online and I discovered that this is a preview, a mild, a very gentle preview of the future where it's like it gives you a list of items to order. Then all of a sudden there's a limit and there's an irrational limit, like only two rolls of toilet paper or only one juice or only sorry. Or actually, you, you added two. Sorry, we, we are going to revert it to one because there's a limit. And it's almost worse than the Soviet Union. Well, it's better because the Soviet Union, the shelves were empty, period. But uh, in a sense, it's like it's an algorithm. So in the Soviet Union, the most menacing cashier, there was a like 0.001% you could argue with her. <laughs> like, you know, like it was a small percentage, but there were miracles. With an algorithm, it's just really like a screen. So it tells you you can't means you can't. A friend was telling me yesterday, I, I agree with you because once they, I think their goal is to remove uh, humans and like, you know, at, at the border checkpoints, at shops, it'll just be AI, like the Amazon store where there's no people and it's just facial recognition and AI stuff. Uh, a friend of mine, a friend of mine recently went to, here to Mexico to some um, mall and the lady at the entrance was forcing i mean i don't use the the gel right i view the gel hand gel as toxic and poisonous and, right. and like i'm not gonna put that on and uh, the friend is the same and she's got kids and the, they were now forcing you to put the gel on your kids uh, otherwise you can't go in to the shop wow. and, and but it, it's the point that you made that the lady my friend was like she was like ah uh, oh, well like she didn't want to do it and the lady said just this once i will let you go without the gel and is that speaks to your point that there's that five percent of the human remaining uh but now once they remove that it's going to be like a total technocratic dystopia yeah and it comes from it actually you know what i was thinking and well i'm going to uh talk about it now before i actually write about it because oh, no, that was my article in the making but uh so in the mind of a technocrat, the anxiety that drives it, like occasionally I even catch it in myself in petty things, and it gives me great insight. Uh, I mean, like that desire to control, like, for example, if you think that people around you are not doing things right and it's endangering you, then there's this little tiny, like, voice in your head that maybe you can just manage them better. Maybe you can, like, figure out a way to kind of streamline them into that kind of behavior so that you are protected from their whatever stupidity, bad opinions. And, you know, every now and then it sneaks into my own head. And then I like, I catch it. I'm like, ah, here it is. Here's my inner technocrat. And that's the start of it. And if you don't catch it, and of course there are situations in which you need to protect yourself. I mean, like the, the life is not black and white, but then if you, don't approach it with care, with spiritual responsibility, with like walking the fine line, then there's a danger that 30 years later, you'll be a technocrat 
you know, in training, even without that money. And uh, on, on, a, on a similar note, one time I remember when, you know, uh, oh, my mom just came to America and like we, we were at some kind of like official like DMV or like some something like some official uh, place. And they had a rule that you have to stand here, not there. And my mom was like standing in the wrong place. And I remember getting irritated, like, mom, can't you just, and then I was like, what am I doing? Who am I siding with? Like, is it my mother or the machine? And I caught it and I felt really horrible. And I was like, this is bad. And I'm against all that. And yet, so I think there's always this temptation to try to simplify our lives by cutting corners, essentially, because human beings can be messy. I mean, like, that's just the foundational truth of it. And right now, everybody's broken and everybody is, like, people are, but most people are somewhat broken and probably all are broken to some degree, even if they try not to be. So it's very difficult to organize people all over the place. And it requires great humility and a lot of work and it's frustrating. And if you're a good leader, then good luck. I mean, like, that's just really a lot of work. So if you're a leader with not so good intentions, then maybe you just solve that internal anxiety and impatience by putting sensors into people and then outsourcing it to AI so that if they get out of control, even a little bit, then AI cop shows up and does something. I mean, that's just, and it's little work. I mean, like first you put in the work to just design that AI and put all this investment and convince people to do it. And then in their heads, it's a good life because people are in control and you are, you know, living like a king. So that is probably what's going on in their heads. And we, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult situation. So the reform as such is pretty horrible and completely anti-human. And it's driven by really lowest emotions and this ancient desire to control without wisdom. And I think that's what it is. So it's not even a matter of the you know past century of communism or fascism. I think it goes back a lot farther. And as we talked previously, uh, every ism has been used to satisfy that emotion. Like for example, uh, well, Russia, as of the past you know, 10, 11 centuries, is a Christian nation, right? And there has been lots of beautiful art that came out of Christian Russian culture. And it's kind of like that art of separation, that art of melancholy and sadness for the most part, but beautiful. Nonetheless, at the same time, that ism, the Christianism, has been used to like wreak horrible havoc in the world. And I remember uh, that in my own, like when the Soviet Union fell apart, the people who are fanatical atheists became fanatical Christians. And it was as unpleasant as fanatical atheists because all of a sudden it's like, you're, you're Scottish too short, you're horrible, you're like immoral, you're a sinner. You're and I remember suffering intensely because of that. That tied into that misery, like the psychological misery and desire to control but it was done in the name of allegedly religious purity, right? So people are really funny creatures in that sense. So I, I stopped paying attention to isms a long time ago. It's just like mm -hmm. we have something on the inside 
and then we slap different isms on top of it. There was something you wrote uh, that I wanted to ask you about because I was actually thinking that I've been thinking the same thing for the last two years as well. I've been thinking about this and it, it was on one of your, I guess, many websites. Uh, I already mentioned some of your website. You, you got another called make language great again, uh, .com, um, And you were talking about the physical world being the only world we have. Um, I think you're right. The physical world is the only one we have. Technology managed by people whose hearts are a mess is not going to save us. We already have more technology than what our bodies can handle. It's eating our brains, our personal space, and our planet. If we hush our own hearts and walk off the cliff with the maniacs, off the cliff we go, uh, end quote. And, you know, a lot of people point to this idea of, you know, evolution, endless progress focused on technology and that, you know, more technology, is, it's always good. We're moving forward and that the digital world is something organic and kind of like a natural evolution. And I'm personally seeing this less and less to be the case. Uh, I think we're not made to live uh, in the matrix, I think about the times where I've I've lived uh, in the Gobi Desert in in rural Mongolia, in the yurts, uh, in in rural Croatia, and where you're just in nature. You know, you have a simple home, like an old stone home with the donkeys and the animals and good food and friends and music, and it's like little, almost no technology. And I'm I was just thinking, I know for me, life can't get better than that. Like I could just live in in the, in, in the woods, <laughs> in the desert or whatever. I don't really need this technology, but now you have. Cobra Commander Klaus Schwab saying, no, you you village the bugs, you need brain chip implant, right? The metaverse will be such wow. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what are your thoughts about this that you were talking about? Like the physical world is all that we have and, you know, this kind of digital space that they're trying to put us into. Well, first, I want to address something. I get comments occasionally on that story. People say, wait a second, there's also a spiritual world. What are you? What do you mean? So that that's implied. By physical world, I meant the natural world. And probably everything is on some level physical, although it's physical in a completely different manner. So that's what I meant. So I didn't mean materialistic world. I meant just real world. Uh, and uh, as opposed to digital and metaverse and AR and all those things. So, well, again, I think that technology as such, it's kind of like, you know, it's our gift from the divine to play with. It can be used really wonderfully. And by the way, people in all the ancient cultures, they had beautiful technology in a different, in a completely different understanding of the world technology. They knew how to interact with nature in ways that scientists can only dream today. And scientists are always scratching the surface and they I mean like they really like they're trying to understand what people used to know. But uh, that aside, I think that the problem is lack of balance and extreme, like the trying to take everything to the extreme. For example, many things can be used as medicine, but if there's too much of it, then it can kill you. Similarly, if there is wisdom, then probably even genetic engineering in 2000, in like 200 years when the scientists actually know what they're doing, maybe it can help 100 people of this world who really need it. And I would be all for it. However, when it's like we only figured out how to do it, maybe, and then we are going to apply it to the entire universe to try to make a buck. I mean, like that's wrong. And it's even wrong when there's no bad intention, when it's pure for briefs. I mean, like, that's still wrong. Like, for example, taking it back to the Soviet Union, 
which is very reminiscent of today, actually, in the West. So when city-educated folks would come to the village and explain to the peasants how to farm correctly, and if the farmers were skeptical about it, then they were obviously backwards and they needed re-education of some sort. Like, it reminds me of something. This is how they're trying to do it today. And then, of course, years and decades passed by, and they were like, oops, sorry, you know, we kind of, like, we didn't think it through, and now those pesticides, they're killing us, sorry. But let's do genetic engineering. So Yeah, yeah and, all, <laughs> and all these people from the urban area, they, they don't know how to farm, so they're telling you, uh, how to do it when you're the one actually uh, doing it better um i i guess one of my last uh, questions in the interest of of time uh, um what do we do you know what would you consider effective means of resistance uh, i also i also think much about i'm more pessimistic i'm like uh, how do you prepare for living under such a regime because uh, there's a lot of people who are more optimistic and they have more hopium uh, i kind of view that like the next decades we'll be living more and more under this uh, strict regime. And so I'm just thinking of ways to brace for impact uh, and how to survive. Uh, so uh, what are your thoughts on, on resisting? You know, what do we do? Uh, thoughts on living under, surviving under such a regime? Well, my thoughts are mostly existential and philosophical because that game started uh, centuries ago. And uh, I really like the work of Stephen Newcomb, who writes about the system of domination. I think his linguistic framework is probably one of the best to explain it. And he is, uh, he's Native American. And so his view of the Great Reset of today is from the standpoint of the Great Reset of the past that the original people of the America, Americas had to live through. And so it's kind of this beast of domination that takes upon different belief systems, different isms. Like in that case, it was officially uh, a Christian domination because that's how it was worded. That was their terminology. And so Christianity was used as an excuse to come and kill and murder and rob and steal and enslave. That was, again, just a way of people to channel whatever they had on the inside. But that's almost like a ghost of domination that gets into people and makes them do really strange things. And by the way, I do think that in a way, when Europeans went all over the place, creating a lot of suffering, I suspect maybe they were looking to remember something that was lost in Europe by that time, but because they really didn't know how and they were so broken, it's like, you know, sometimes on a human level, somebody like say a kid who is very enthusiastic, he really wants to be friends with you and he's completely fucked up. But he really wants to be friends with you. And so, like, if you don't give him that friendship, he's going to, like, you know, be trouble. I think it's almost that, but on a much more broad scale. So I think that that will only end this cycle when people, the majority of people go through something internally and maybe things have to get worse before they get better. I always hope not. But I think. We're in an existential place that is like millions of years old. Like we have no idea what's going to happen. We can pray. We can be brave. We can obviously make practical choices that make sense for each of us. Like whether it's moving from a city and trying to get farmland or try. I mean, like people 
I think all of that makes sense. Probably being closer to, to the land is the best idea, but here I'm in New York because if I have things here. So it's not easy for everybody. But I do think that staying with your soul and praying in whatever way, you know, people have different beliefs and different ways to go about it. So whatever it is, whether it's a particular religion, a general spirituality, but as long as it's sincere, not like not bullshit, but like sincere from the heart, that's probably the guidance. I cannot think of anything else. It's tough times. And, and that Stephen that you mentioned, was that someone that you interviewed on your YouTube channel? I interviewed him. He, he's a brilliant scholar. He's spent decades studying the system of domination and he wrote about it. And his link with, I mean, he goes afterwards. He analyzed like papal bulls and the language that they used and the letters of early American presidents too. So he actually, he did massive amount of work on the system of domination. And he focused uh, up until, well, now when things are very interesting, but uh, he focused on the uh, analysis of papal bulls and the language used by, for example, various early American politicians and their strategy on how to take over, essentially exterminate Indians or convert them. And those letters, interestingly, sound much like Lenin's strategy. They are very bloodthirsty and people think that it's complete opposites, like capitalism or communism and people like to form loyalties and allegiances like you know i'm pro this i'm pro that and i think it's noble when people put their soul into something like with love but if you analyze it what people were doing so they're very very similar because it's essentially a military strategy how to take over the enemy whoever you declare the enemy and in the case of early american politicians writing private letters to their important people it was like, okay, let, let's install shops close to Indian reservations and hopefully they'll get into debt. We'll give them a lot of like, credit. And when they get into too much debt, hopefully they'll make concessions and they'll give the land to us. Because why do they need the land anyway? They're so backwards there. Like, and they should all, like we hope for the end of their culture. We hope for the end of them and they'll be happy for themselves. And that's a strategy that's extermination strategy and that's a conspiracy like that's the point that he makes that, that i mean like that what if it's not a conspiracy then what is it and who we are to think that that way of thinking ended the day we were born it's probably still continuing it's so never fascinating. his work is great it's never stopped and actually i remember that i bookmarked that that interview of yours and i only watched like the first two minutes and i i, I didn't get the time to finish it it's still bookmarked so i'm gonna go back uh, and watch that interview and i knew it was important because it just sounded interesting from the description that that you gave and i hope listeners as well uh, i'll try to include it in the link of the description so people can check it out um finally we have a final thought for us uh well no pressure <laughs> Well, I think the final thought is that life goes on. And I think the most important thing, or at least one of the most important things, is to keep the fear in check. Because Klaus Schwab and the people above him and the people below him who try to help him, they're just human beings. I mean, they sneeze, they whatever, they're scared, and one day they'll die, just like all of us. So uh, they try to be 
uh, to intimidate us, I think they scare themselves because the reason for such pressure, for such bullying, for such insanity is because they know that what they're doing is pretty insane and it's pretty obnoxious. So they're trying. So there's no reason to be afraid. Protect ourselves, but without fear. I think that's an absolutely great uh, final thought. Um, I will list all of your websites in the description, your Twitter, your Substack, TessaMakesLove.com, TessaFightsRobots.com, uh, MakeLearningGreatAgain.com, your YouTube, sorry, MakeLanguage. Uh, <laughs> is there any other <laughs> Yeah. Is there any other website or project uh, you're working on we should know about? Oh, uh, well, if anybody wants to find me on Twitter, uh, I don't know when it kicks me out, but it's Tessa Makes Love is the handle. And most of my writings right now are on Substack, just because, you know, it's all happened and so far they don't censor. So tessa.substack.com is probably the best way to find me. And thank you again. I am an admirer of your work. So it's been a pleasure to talk. Yes, it was fun, uh, except for this was like the first interview that we've done, uh, that I've done in, out of like dozens of interviews where uh, the, there's something wrong with the, with the internet connection. But everybody uh, subscribe to Tessa Substack. I follow, you know, follow her work now. I, I get every post of hers. Uh, and again, Spasiba Shtobilina Geopolitika i Imperia. My pleasure. All this in the Zdarovia, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.